Hi, I'm Sam Cowan. I'm your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, On this podcast, I seek to bring in coaches, sports scientists, or others involved in coaching primarily endurance athletes, although we will delve into team sports from time to time. If you have a suggestion for a future guest, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. You can also visit the website, smartercoachingllc.com, where you can uh, access old episodes. Please, I ask of you to subscribe to this and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. So with that, let me introduce you to today's guest. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for joining me for this interview with Alex Hutchinson, the author of Endure, and also the author of Which Comes First, Cardio or Weights. And I really enjoyed my conversation with Alex on uh, this topic about what limits endurance performance. And to give you a little sneak preview here, we really stay away from metabolic things, VO2 max or acidity or lactate and those sorts of things, and really get more into looking at the brain's role in uh, limiting performance and its role in performance in general. There's so much more we could have delved into that he delves into in his book, Endure. Uh, Things like transcranial direct current stimulation we didn't get a chance to talk about, but he mentions in the book. Also talked about pain and discomfort. Uh, We don't talk about that, but he mentions it in the book. And we really didn't talk about belief that I wanted to get to, but we were just running short on time because I think belief plays a big role in exercise performance. And Alex writes in the book about some studies that were done where uh, cyclists were kind of fooled into going faster than they thought that they could. And I think that's an interesting dynamic. Sometimes you have to believe it to be able to do it. And if you can't believe you can do it, you're probably not going to be able to do that. So again, we kind of focus a lot on central governor theory, uh, a little bit of the work of Tim Noakes and Samuel Marcora, and we get into kind of a little uh, sidetrack on talking about the the benefits and uh, downside to Twitter. Uh, so we take some little detours in here, but we I hope you enjoy the uh, gist of the conversation as always. So uh, here's uh, my interview with Alex Hutchinson. Welcome to today's Smarter Coaching Podcast. And I'm really excited to have Alex Hutchinson on with uh, me today. And uh, Alex is the author at Sweat Science Blog, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And uh, I got the great chance to meet Alex in person in Denver very briefly a a few weeks ago at the Rocky Mountain Triathlon Club. Club. Had he and Christy Ashwin done in to talk about their respective books. So Alex, uh, thanks for joining me today and giving me some of your time. Oh, well, great to great to have a chance to chat again, Sam. So you write Sweat Science blog that is now at Outside Magazine, but before that was at Runner's World, and then I think I first may have come across it when you did it for the Toronto Globe and Mail. Am I right on that? Well, there's a bit of overlap. So I actually still write a column for the Globe and Mail, a newspaper in Toronto, and that column's called Jockology. Um, and every couple of weeks I write something about the science of health, fitness, exercise, endurance. Um, and I started that back in 2008, I think it was. And so once I started researching that, I was, uh, I was spending a lot of time, you know, looking through journals and, and, you know, only one every two weeks would I get to write about in the globes. And I, but I had all these other 
I was coming across all the other studies that I thought people like me would be interested in. And so I wanted to have a place to just kind of, just kind of like a scratch pad almost where I could throw up a, put up a quick blog post. This is, you know, 10, 10, 15 years ago, blogs were the thing, right? So you, you have a quick blog post that says, Hey, look at this cool study I found. Here's, here's a cut and paste a, a figure from it and say, isn't that kind of cool? So I started up a WordPress blog, uh, in sometime around 2009, I think, uh, called, which I called Sweat Science. And so from 2009 to 2012, it was sort of a, an ancillary to my Globe and Mail column. Just, uh, you know, I was at the time, it was just kind of a scratch pad. So I was throwing up, you know, three, four or five entries a week uh, of just studies I was coming across and comments on, on things that people were talking about. And then in 2012, it moved to Runner's World and became uh, more formalized. But there's the two have the, the Globe column is, still exists. So they kind of go on in parallel. Okay. Well, and I, every now and then I'll see a link to the to Globe one, and I didn't know it was that regular, so I need to make sure that I'm on the lookout for it. And I'll put links to these in the show notes for folks so they can get to them uh, easily. Well, you talked about you were coming across all these journal articles, and I'm, I'm going to ask you about your academic background in a minute. But before I even do that, I want to compliment you. I, 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 I'm decently first in exercise science, uh, a master's degree in it, working in the field for a, a few years before I kind of shifted more into coaching education. And one of the things I've really got to compliment you on is your ability to take the, the science and, you know, incredibly dry journal articles most of the time. And I've written some of those, so I think I can say, <laughs> um, and translating it so that a lay person, a lay audience can get something out of it. And I also appreciate you looking and putting the latest study, and I've got air quotes around that, into context with the rest of the literature. Because all too often in journalism, we see the latest study as promoted as, well, this is the final thing to it. This is the answer. And they ignore the 50 other studies that may have contradicted that one or or had some tweak in it. So maybe that would be a good jumping place to talk about your academic background uh, and Kind of what led you to where you are in and being a writer now? Sure. I mean, let, let me first say that. I mean, thank you very much for for the kind words, and also say that it's uh, that's one of the things that has made my job get harder and harder over the last, let's say, ten years. Because when I first started writing in this area, every study looked new to me, and it was exciting. And I could write a you know either a column or a blog entry saying, "Hey, wow, this cool new study tells us that you know if you stretch this way or or take this supplement or or do this you know ice bath or whatever, it's going to change your life." Um, and 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 it was very you know it was exciting to see that someone that science had told us that this was what it was going to be and so I could write a study about it and as time went on you know the the, the, the topics start to recur and you're and you know two or three years down the road I'm writing a study and it's like oh or I'm writing an article about a study and it's like oh but I already wrote about this topic two years ago so this this can't be the whole truth because I already had part of the truth last time and then you start to realize like you said oh there's actually been 50 other studies on this and they go back and forth and that suggests that whatever we're looking at is is a, a little more complicated and probably less quote unquote revolutionary than we thought. So so these days I you know I come across all these studies and uh you know you you look through for instance the as we speak the American College of Sports Medicine conference is on I I I looked through 800 pages of abstracts from that yeah. conference just to see what was going on. And a lot of those studies are ones that 10 years ago I would have said wow this is exciting this is a the question that I wanted answered and and they have an answer. But now the problem is I've seen 
or not the problem. I mean, I'm, I'm saying problem facetiously, but yeah. uh, it, you know, the, the quote unquote problem is, is that I, I've, I've seen the same question answered so many times in so many different ways. And the answers don't agree with each other. That I just don't, I don't believe that that one study has the final answer. So I'm much more hesitant. Um, so anyway, hopefully, hopefully it's made me a better journalist uh, as I've evolved over, over time, but it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, it, it's, it's more complicated. As you said, it's, it's a lot harder to, to, uh, to try and convey the, the bigger picture than it is just to take a single study and then pretend that it's it's the be all and end all. Anyway, to, sorry, to answer your actual question, which was <laughs> my academic background, um, it, 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 with respect to um, exercise science and, and the stuff I'm writing about these days, my ac- academic background is zero. Um, so I, I started out as a, as a physicist. I, I studied, you know, at university, I did an undergraduate degree in physics, and then I did a PhD in physics, um, and then I took a year off or a year out of academia because I didn't know what I wanted to do. But at the end of that year, I didn't still didn't know what I wanted to do, and I was living, you know, in my parents' basement basically, and and so I had to do something. So I I, <laughs> I continued on in physics since it was the obvious thing to do, and I did a, a postdoctoral fellowship for uh, it was a three-year fellowship. But after two and a half years, I finally figured out that that wasn't what I wanted to do, and so this was by this time I was 28. I uh, I left my my fellowship and and went and did a, a master's in journalism, so just a one year master's, um, with not really knowing where I was headed. I didn't I, I didn't sort of say I'm going to leave and become a, a a sports science journalist, but I thought uh, journalism would be an opportunity to 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 maybe be able to pursue some of the you know turn some of my hobbies into into a profession in a sense to 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 pursue things that were interesting to me, one of which was endurance sports since since that's what I'd been competing as a, as a runner most of my life. So I did that one year, uh, journalism degree, which in sense, I guess, you know, that gave me training, some training for what I'm doing now. I took courses in science journalism stuff. And certainly you, you learn about a lot of the pitfalls, like including the ones we were just talking about, about failing to put studies in context and things like that. Um, and so at that point, uh, yeah, I did that journalism degree, my first, you know, out of, out of journalism school, I managed to get a summer internship with a newspaper called the Ottawa Citizen, um, which was a, a good learning opportunity. And then they have, as well as summer internships, they had one-year internships, which I got. I got one of them, too. So I ended up spending 16 months as the sort of, uh, you know, Jimmy at the bottom of the totem pole at, at a daily newspaper, running around covering, uh, you know, car crashes and, and, and dog fashion shows and things like that. Um, and, and, and I wrote, you know, something like, I don't know, 300 articles over the course of a little more than a year. Uh, so that was really excellent training and something that I hadn't done a lot of during my physics years, which was writing and also excellent training in talking to people. <laughs> I'm, you know, I am a, I'm, I'm not a sort of naturally gregarious person. So, uh, just getting used to calling people up or, or knocking on doors or just talking, talking to people and asking them and getting them to explain things. And so, uh, so that was my kind of, that that was my training, and and so in 2006 I finished up my internship at the Citizen and and decided to go freelance. When I say decided to, what I mean is I didn't have any job <laughs> <laughs> offers or opportunities. So hey, I'm a freelancer. All right, let's uh, let's go. Um, and at that point I was I was willing to write about anything pretty much. I started at my one of my first contacts was the editor of the Bottom Line, which is Canada's accounting monthly. Uh, so I wrote a bunch about the Sarbanes Oxley Law and went to some accounting conferences and stuff like that. Um, but oh my uh, you God, know, that I, I'm I'm sorry I got interject. That just sounds horribly incredibly boring to me. I, it may have been exciting <laughs> for you, but I'm thinking Sarbanes Oxley. Oh my 
God, what, you know, and I don't even follow it that closely, but that just uh, sent shivers up my spine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll confess it wasn't, you know, what I dreamed of as a kid. Uh, <laughs> the editor the, the editor there that I knew, you know, he had a sense of humor about it, and he was like, look, it's all stories. If you can tell a story about this, you can tell a story about anything. Oh, and, and you know, I went, and, and you go to an accounting conference, uh, and, you know, there's some good stories there. There's people telling, you know, telling the tales of, forensic accounting uh you know tracking down wrongdoers or things like that and so and you know rule changes have effects on people anyway i i'm not going to claim that i want to go do that again but it it was it was good training and and it was also like if you want to make a living as a freelance journalist you got to be willing to 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 take the opportunities that come so um it gave me good training but it also gave me motive and incentive to to uh to try and develop my my opportunities in topics that I found more interesting. And so that sort of led me to start writing about, quote unquote, what I know, which uh, you know, one of the things I knew well was was endurance sports. And another thing that I knew well was science. I, you know, now, not necessarily, speci- you know, I, I don't write about the, the, the physics that I was working on as a, as a PhD student or anything for the most part. But you know, I have an understanding of the scientific process and and comfortable speaking to scientists and stuff like that. So I started writing some sort of science of sports kinds of things in probably about 2007, 2008. And that it really clicked. It was something that I felt like I had a unique background that was suited towards, even though, like I said, I don't have any exercise science training, but I have uh, a background in endurance sports and then a science training and a journalism training. And those things seem to come come together well. Well, you mentioned you you have an athletic background as a you know in endurance sports as a distance runner. You you know, I would say you were an accomplished distance runner for sure. Making a making a country's Olympic trials is I think quite an accomplishment. And uh, you know you weren't a, a middle of the packer kind of just a guy like me. You actually had uh, had performed at, at a pretty high level. And I think a lot of times people who do that, I I was a distance runner as well. I, I guess I still am, but. I'm more of a hobby jogger now because uh, I've just gotten older and it's yep. uh, hard to yep. push myself now. And uh, in there, but that was my interest in exercise science came from the fact that I had run and I had cycled. I'd done triathlons. And I was kind of curious about how the body worked. And um, I, I came to this field late in life, relatively speaking. I was in my thirties when I took a, up a master's in it. But um, hmm. I also think that kind of helps you in a way because I have some life experience and other things. But um and and then yeah, just want to know how the body works, and you know, certainly knowing what it feels like to really push yourself to that edge or even beyond at times uh, is way better than some of the academic folks who may have never experienced that. Let me uh, let me use that opportunity to throw in a a, a shout out to uh, David Epstein's new book uh, Range, which came out uh, earlier this week. One of the and, and you know it's it's all about I think the subtitle is like Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialist World. But one of the points he makes is that, and, and he cites some very interesting research showing that uh, people who sort of find their calling a little bit later are much more, you know, they, they in a sense, they start out, the other people have a head start if they have, but, but the people who start out later tend to have spent more time figuring out what they're interested in and end up with a better match between what they, what they want to do and what they are doing. And so they, then they make rapid progress and catch up pretty quickly. So I think that, that sort of fits in with what you're saying about both you and, and, and me, uh, sort of coming to our careers a little bit later, 
but having some relevant experience and having, you know, having, having kind of lived a little bit and then being able to bring that experience to bear. Yeah. I, uh, I, I actually, his book is waiting for me at, at Barnes and Noble over here. I uh, didn't get a chance to pick it up yesterday. I've heard a couple of good interviews with him and, uh, I, I've, I've reached out to try to get him on mine. If you've got any pull in that direction, I would appreciate the uh, the shout out and the good word would uh, be greatly appreciated. <laughs> will do, will do. Yeah, thanks. That because that book really, when I when I saw it, um, I get you know a few weeks ago when kind of started sending out tweets about it and a little blurbs on it. I thought, oh my god, that's me. I, I really feel like a generalist in a specialist world where I've got this I've got kind of unusual background, and um, I think it plays well in that generalist one, but. Um, but speaking of books, let's talk about your book. How's that for a segue? I'm, I'm not a professional <laughs> yeah, exactly. segue person here. What but, is that up? <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, and actually, you have two books. Um, we're going to talk about both of them a little bit here. One is Endure, which came out uh, 2018, and it, it's you, your deep dive kind of into what are the limits of endurance performance. If I can summarize it in one sentence that way, if that uh, makes sense, and I guess the question is you, how would you best describe it? And then what was the inspiration for writing it? Yeah, you know, I think your description is is exactly right. And I think this this is the book that most directly comes from my own experiences as a runner and just sort of, and you know, anyone who's competed seriously, uh, and, and you know, I'm not talking about a specific speed, but about competed seriously against their own limits, trying to figure, trying to find out if they can go faster. You can't help but wondering, like, okay, what is it that's holding me back? You know, you run a race and it's like, I don't know about, I can't generalize to everyone else, but I know for me, uh, every time I finish a race, I'd look back at some part of the race and think, why didn't I go faster during yeah. that, you know, that, that third quarter? Like, why? I was, I, like, I, I, my classic pattern, and this is not unusual, is that I, I tended to finish races very, very fast. Uh, and and the the price of that is that I tended to have lapses, you know, in the in the middle third or the third quarter or something like that. Right. And the thing, and I was well aware of this, and so I I I would, you know, in the third quarter of a race, I would be like, Alex, don't save it for the kick. Don't push hard now. Go as hard as you can. Pretend it's only a four k race rather than a five k race. But none of those tricks worked, and I, I would, I would always, I would be convinced in the middle of the race that I was running as fast as I could. And as, as if a competitor was starting to pull away from me, I'd say, "Don't let him get away." But, I'd, but my, my perception would be, I can't. I, I like he's just too fast. My legs, you know. Well, this is where the question is. So what is it? My legs can't move that fast, or I can't breathe any harder. I can't get the oxygen in, or I can't, for whatever reason, I wouldn't be able to go with the guy. And then you know, the last kilometer, the last lap, the bell would ring. And I'd start sprinting. I'd be like, "What the heck? What, what? How am I sprinting now? What? What? Where did those limitations that I thought I was perceiving, uh, you know, how did they disappear?" And so, anyway, all of which is to say, I think this is not uncommon. And so, it was something that I'd always wondered about a lot, and tried to understand, you know, what fundamentally, what is it that's holding you back when you're pu- trying to really push your limits? And that, I think, as you said, that's the basic question I wanted to try to answer and endure. And it, it's. Um, let me let me confess uh, that you don't get to the end. And it's like, oh, that's the answer. All right, okay, now we know. All right, uh, you know, there, there's no two sentence answer. Although the, I guess the closest I can come to that is is it's uh, is that the brain plays a much greater role than than we 
have maybe sometimes tended to give give it credit that when we when we think of a mes- mechanistic model of you know it's my legs it's the lactic acid it's my vo2 max it's it's my running economy or whatever you know whatever the we can explain a lot about performance by thinking of the human body as as you know just a machine that where we where we're trying to understand the parts but that never to me uh, explained the subjective feeling of a race so the why does it feel like i'm all out three quarters through of the way through a race and then i have a sprint at the end and so there's a, there's the the brain's role in integrating all these parts of the body turns out to be much more complicated but uh but, it, but you know i can't remember how many chapters there are in the book there's uh six and three to nine i think there's 13 chapters in the book yes and uh the, the reason there are 13 chapters in the book and not like one is that it it's it, it the human body and mind are a gloriously complicated machine and, and when you're pushing to your limits there's a lot of different things happening there's not it's not just like you know y- y- your fuel tank is empty or something it's like there's a huge interplay of of great complexity and and, and great fascination so i think so to me it ended up being not a journey to discover the answers of how I can go 2% faster. It was more a journey to understand what's going on when I'm pushing my limits and what are the various factors that are pushing back against me. And and I appreciate the book for not trying to reduce it down to one thing. I think that I think too often we, and I think this is a pretty common human trait in reading things on message boards, a certain website you and I were talking about before we started recording or you know, just talking to people or seeing, you know, people are looking for the, what's the thing and that reductionism down to trying to find the one thing really oversimplifies what goes on in the human body. We're, we're a pretty complex organism. And then, I mean, just at rest, we're pretty complex, much less you throw in this, you know, stressful state of exercise or competing. And there is not one thing. Every time it seems like somebody says, ah, we found the thing. And then the scientists study it and they find out, oh, no, it's not. There's, you know, just doing that by itself is not the answer. I, I think of um, nutrition to me is a horrible world for this of, you know, here's the latest, greatest <laughs> thing. And, you know, for a while there it was the it was uh, the, the name of the element or the chemical in uh, red wine escapes me right now. But that was a hot thing. And then when they pulled it Resveratrol, out. Resveratrol. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there you go. I, don't, I think also I could never learn to pronounce that right. So I blocked it in my brain. Um, <laughs> but then when they studied just that alone, it was like there was no, you know, they found no effect. So what is it? Is it a combination of things? More than likely. And and the other one that I, that I uh, kept thinking about during this, and I think that uh, – I think it actually is in your first book. This comes up more. I, I reread them kind of back to back. Here is there's a lot of it depends in there too. And um, I I remember the joke about the uh, coach who one time told the, told the sports scientist, "I'm looking for a one-handed sports scientist." And the sports scientist said, "One-handed." He goes, "Yeah, because if I ask you a question, you give me an answer, but then you go on the other hand." He goes, "I don't yeah. want the other <laughs> hand. I want the answer." So uh, yeah, it's one of yeah. my favorite stories to to tell. Um, <laughs> You- it really does get at something important. I, you know, let me just say, like, nope. in in writing the book, look, I, 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 I'm a, I'm, I'm human. I understand that, you know, I understand the coach's perspective. I understand and the athlete's perspective. Sometimes you, you don't want the, the sort of on the, on the fourth hand. You just kind of want. So, okay, but bottom line, tell me what I should do, and. I, I totally get that, but I, yeah. I consciously, you know, I made a decision early on in this process. I wasn't going to write that book 
that I, and and you know maybe we can talk about it later. But which comes first? The earlier book was a much more practically oriented book where I tried to give to the best of my ability. So lots of it depends, but I tried to, to, to try and give answers or or much more practical information. And I could have written endure in the same way, trying to say what are the limits and how what are the five you know easy you know simple steps you can take to push your limits back. And and I get into the, a little bit of that. I do I do give some ideas in the book about things that I that that should help alter limits. Things like uh, you know psychological techniques like motivational self talk and things sure. like that. But I I really didn't emphasize that. And I, I hear that you know sometimes when I'm giving talks and people will ask it's like well what do we do with all this information? And you know like I said I've tried to give a little bit of that information, but I really tried to stay away from making the book about that because the problem is once you make the book about certain techniques or certain approaches once you make those the answer it's very hard not to then start trying to fit all the pieces of evidence you have trying to fit them into that framework so that it looks like everything supports this idea oh yeah that here's the five steps you need to do so i wanted to uh, to almost avoid taking any sort of serious position so that i could be make sure that i was not forcing the evidence to fit that picture i wanted to have overlapping pictures and kind of a, a little ambiguity because that's where we're at we're at right now that's that's this is what what i'm trying to present is what we know or what or, or what we think we know and and we and we don't have the final answers and so anyway so all of which is to say that i hope the book is useful to people but i hope it even more that it's interesting to people and and sort of helps them understand their uh, what's going on when they push their limits and and gives them a more nuanced picture rather than trying to just give them the the you know, quote unquote the answers. What what a follow up on yours? You, you know, talking about the the end result and trying to make everything fit it. That to me sounds more like a religion than science. And <laughs> um, and you know, also part of it too is that you know even in studies that are well done, I mean, you know, really good double blinded randomized control, you know, crossover whatever you know setup it, it has. You're going to find some things work for some people and they don't work for others. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, you got to kind of just try it on yourself and see if it works. And some of the stuff that you talk about in Endure is is really things that are free. Like they don't cost you anything like positive self-talk and other things like that that, okay, you do it. And, um, and you know, and you write about laughing about the visualization that you did in, in college and those sorts of things. But you know what? They're also free. And you can do those when you're just sitting around, you know, on the bus to the meet or something like that that don't really take time. So, you know, some of those things are worth giving a try versus, you know, the fancy training devices or recovery devices or, you know, bizarre diets or whatever it may be that become a little more invasive and um, and problematic in doing that. So uh, uh, I, I think you do get some good ideas in that book for at least people to go, hey, maybe that will work. I'll give it a give it a try, and it's not going to hopefully cause me any harm. You know, I don't know that anyone's ever been harmed by doing the positive self-talk. They may find <laughs> it doesn't work, but that's a different story on there. Or they just perhaps aren't doing it as diligently as they could. Uh, my, sports science, my sports psychology friends would always probably come back with that one. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I have a total aside. I can tell a story about the potential negative effects of self-talk. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, just to, for, to give readers context, so basically positive self-talk, you, you're trying to control the 
internal monologue in your head. You're trying to ch- uh, prevent yourself from being halfway through the race and saying, this sucks, I can't do this, I'm going to get beaten again or whatever. And instead, have to sort of naturally have positive thoughts like, I've trained for this, I can do this, keep pushing. And, and there's been some remarkable studies in the last few years that uh, that show how big an effect this can have on performance, even in trained athletes. And so I was giving a talk uh, maybe last sometime last year, and I talked about some of this research. And, and after the talk, someone came up to me and he was like, yeah, you know, I liked your talk. I liked, you know, you discussed this, this, the, the, um, this study from Brock University on motivational self-talk by so-and-so at Al. I'm so-and-so. I'm the, I was the lead author of this study. And, I, and my first reaction was like, oh, I hope I <laughs> – here, here we go. <laughs> I, I probably got some detail wrong. But he was like, no, no, you, you know, you, you, you're fine. You, you presented it uh, just right. But I, I thought you might be interested in, in – in a little detail uh, uh, about it. So he said there were 10 subjects in the study. Nine of them had significant improvements when they were trained in motivational self-talk. One of them didn't. He just, you know, like you said, there's individual variation. He just couldn't get it to work for him. And they, you know, even after the study, they, they kept working with him a little bit, seeing if they, with him a little bit to see if they could get it to click for him. And it just didn't. But then he, he, he uh, you know, and so he found any time someone was coming up to pass him during a race, he was a, he was a mountain biker. He just the, the flood of negative self talk would just be overwhelming, and he wasn't able to to stop that. And so, about six months later, he sent an email to the researcher <laughs> saying, "I finally figured out how to make self talk work for me. You know, I, I just couldn't stop that flood of negative self talk when people were about to pass me. So I figured, since you say it's such a bad thing to have this negative self talk, I should I should try and use it as a weapon. So ah. when someone tries to pass me now, I just externalize that self talk. I say it out loud. I say, you're, this is pathetic. You'll never be able to keep this up. This is way too fast. This is way too far. You, you won't be able to handle this. And it, he said it works every time. They just drop back. I mean, probably they think he's a crazy guy. But so uh, so positive self talk helps you. Negative self talk you can weaponize and use against your enemies. I love that. That's great. Uh, uh, I, I just, uh, everybody's probably talking about, yeah, there's, there's a guy racing against, they must have Tourette's or something. Cause I try to ask <laughs> exactly. him, starts, yeah, yeah. you know, rambling off all sorts of things at me. I, I'd probably be a little bit worried and give, give some space to a guy who started yelling at me if I was about to pass him. Maybe so. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. In your, in the book, uh, Endura, you talk about what, you know, you're trying to get the limits of endurance performance and, uh, I, I recommend the book talks you you go into vo2 max you go into lactate threshold um, you go into a bunch of areas like that but what I really want to focus on is the brain because I'm fascinated by the brain and psychology a little bit of background psychology as well as as a kind of the excess physiology part and I really want to use a, a jumping off part point here is uh, the discussion about the central governor theory and and this is of course Tim Noakes of from South Africa is uh famous or infamous, whichever one you want to choose for the central governor theory. Um, can you give folks a kind of the gist of the central governor theory and what Noakes and, and, um, and, the, and the followers of the theory, uh, you know, say about it and how they think this works? So, yeah, I guess the, the background is, and this was, this was first kind of discussed in the late 1990s, but the background is over the course of the 20th century, people figured out, scientists figured out a lot about how the body works and got to the point where, you, you know, you could actually, you can you have an equation. If, if you measure someone's VO2 max and their lactate threshold and their running economy, you can plug that into an equation and it can tell you roughly how fast someone can run a marathon. Uh, and and that's pretty cool. But, you know, the, the bottom line for it w- w- was that 
if you take, if you go, if you, you know, if you took everyone on the start line of the Olympic marathon and sent them to a lab and ran all the tests yeah. uh, and tried to predict who was going to win the race, you, you would come nowhere close that, that once you get rel- roughly equal people, you just have no idea who's going to win the race. And the question is, well, what's missing from the equation? And, and Noakes' suggestion was what we're missing is the role of the brain. Everyone knows intuitively, of course, you know, some, sometimes you push harder than others. Some people are, are better competitors and so on. Um, but none of that was reflected in the physiology. Like when you're tr- in, in this big, vast physiology literature, there was no way of inserting the brain. And, and so his criticism was we need to have the brain implicitly as a part, you know, it's a key part of the body. It's not separate from the body. It's part of the body and it needs to be part of our models of, of the limits of endurance. And, and what he proposed is that at the, basically at the moment you're, you reach failure or at the, you know, as you approach your limits, you're not being held back by the fact that your legs can't go any farther or go any faster or can't move or that you can't breathe any deeper. It's fundamentally you're being held back by your brain which kind of thinks you shouldn't go any faster or farther, breathe deeper, because you're getting close to your limits. And if you got right to your limits, something very bad might happen. If you know, if you if you really push right to your limits, it may be that you're not suddenly not going to be getting enough oxygen to your heart or your brain, and you're going to do some permanent damage. So it's a self-protective mechanism, uh, which is what he called the, the the central governor. Your so your 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 limits are defined by your brain in anticipation to prevent your body from hitting its actual limits. Um, and this kind of, this idea, so going back to what we were talking about earlier when I was saying, like, I could never understand in the third lap of a race, how come it feels like I'm at my limits and then, you know, the bell rings for the last lap and I can go faster. So all of a sudden this made such intuitive sense to me that it's like, yeah, in the third lap, my brain is protecting me because it feels like I'm in, you know, close to, to my limits. When you get close to the end of the race, your brain knows, oh, okay, uh, you know, the danger is going to pass soon. You're going to stop soon. So, okay, now you can, you can throw in whatever energy you've got left and you can, you can push a little harder. So, so as soon as I read about Noakes's research and about the idea of the central governor, um, this really clicked with me, not from a scientific perspective, but from an experiential perspective of, of this is what it felt like to race. And so that's what got me interested, let's say circa 2007, 2008. And I thought, this is an amazing idea, and it, it just seems to make so much sense. That's what made me want to write the book. I initially thought the book would be, you know, a, a popular, popularized version of what the central governor theory is about, and that it would come out in like 2010. But obviously, the journey ended up being a little longer than I expected. <laughs> yeah. Well, in um, <clears throat> you know, Noakes is uh, I, I I appreciate Noakes a lot because he he is willing to question kind of orthodoxy and question the sacred cows and and you know oftentimes does bring uh good thoughts to that as well as uh good expertise um and there's and i think this kicked off to me it seemed to kick off an interest in what is the brain's role in it maybe there was a lot more before that and i was just not aware of it because i wasn't that deeply into the science at the time but i think it it did do an important thing i'm looking at like you said if you line up everybody you know, at the all the Olympic marathoners, there's not a lot of difference physiologically between you know the top 100 of them for sure. And but then, what does make them different? Is it that they're just more motivated than the other folks, or is there is there some limiting factors in there? But um, it, th- this theory is uh, is not without its critics. 
Um, one, one of my favorite things on Twitter, I follow uh, Samuel Marcora, and um, he is definitely not a fan of uh, central governor theory, although I think he's not as far from from that as I think he would like, to, like maybe he thinks he is. I see a lot of connection there, a lot of potential for there to be a connection. You uh, do some work with Marcora in your book. Um, so maybe what's Marcora's take on the, the brain's role in uh, exercise performance? And where yeah, does that so, differ from the central government theory is kind of a long-winded question there. Yeah, so Semo Marcora, he's an Italian researcher. He's been in Britain for a while, though he's moved, just moving back to Italy with the, the Brexit stuff. Um, and he... I guess, yeah, about a decade ago, 2008, 2009, started proposing what he calls the psychobiological model. Now, I'll, I'll confess, actually, the first time I wrote about it, I, I wrote a blog post on my sweat science blog, basically saying, this sounds to me like the central governor theory by another name. It, it, you know, it doesn't really sound all that much different. Right. And, uh, and Mark Carr actually posted in the comments on my blog, which was surprising because I, you know, had no idea that, uh, I have no <laughs> idea how he found it, but, but saying, no, 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 it's different here. Let me explain what's, what's different. I, before I get into that, I'll, I'll just say, you know, about Twitter is um, <laughs> one of the great things about Twitter is you get to see scientists interact <laughs> with each other and you get a sense of what the debates are. Yep. One of the sad things is you see that some of them are, are, are uh, uh, you know, just absolutely juvenile. And so th- there's there's been <laughs> pretty uh, vicious back and forth between Marcora and some of the Noakes camp yeah. and, and yeah. actually some of the ex-Noakes camp. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that all the fault is on one side, but I would say one of the reasons that Marcora is so critical of Noakes' work now is that s- some of those guys, some of the people from the, the Cape Town uh, group, not not necessarily Noakes himself, uh, have been absolutely you know, like unacceptably uh, rude yeah. uh, uh, about about his work, and so I think so, some of the uh, you know one one of it, very early on when I started writing about Noakes' work, I. I chatted to a guy named Stephen Chung, who's a, 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 a researcher, you know, yep. a researcher in thermophysiology. Anyway, one of the things he said to me, because he, he finds himself kind of in the middle of some of these debates, and he said, you know, you have to remember that science is a human endeavor. Yeah. Uh, and it's true. And so I, I think, you know, some of these, some of the camps that we see uh, in discussing, you know, what is the ultimate theory of the brain? They're less about science and more about personalities and about, you know, geographical alliances and, yeah. uh, you know, all that stuff. So all of which is to say, uh, I think, I do think you're correct in saying that the, the theories are, are more similar than, uh, than than they may seem. I have come to understand a little bit uh, about what, why, what's different about Marcora's theory. Um, Noakes's conception of the central governor has evolved yes. so that it actually, not only is, so Marcora's theory was not that different from Noakes' theory. Noakes' theories have, have evolved and changed so that the central governor looks a lot more like what Marcora proposed 10 years ago now. So they've been kind of converging, which I think is right. a, a good thing in a sense because it suggests hopefully we're moving towards areas of agreement, which suggests that maybe they're correct. But anyway, so w- one of the things that Marcora – so Mar- Marcora's fundamental claim is that the master switch of endurance is your, your subjective perception of effort that what really matters is how hard something feels. Now, how, how if I'm out for a run, how hard a given pace feels, that's going to depend on a bunch of physiological things. It's going to depend on, you know, how, how hard I'm breathing, and it's going to depend on, you know, my core temperature and my lactate levels and all these sorts of things. Um, that's going to influence my perception of effort, but that's not, that's not the only things that will 
influence my perception of effort. Other things, how how well I slept, how how what my internal monologue is, what my motivational self-talk tells me, mm-hmm. like the psychological state will also influence my perception of effort. And so, you know, if you, it, it sort of gets back to the cliche of if you think you can do it, you can, and if you think you can't, you can't. Um, but it's it's it, it it you've got this perception of effort as the ultimate arbiter, and when you when you quit or when like when you're racing along and someone pulls away from you, like if I'm racing and in the third lap, someone's starting to pull away from me. Whereas the, the central governor picture is that it's this subconscious central governor and my brain is protecting me. I want to go with that guy, but my brain thinks it's not safe. And so it prevents me from going with that guy who's getting away. Marcora would say, no, there's no little man inside your head. That's, <laughs> you know, put that's, that's slamming on the brakes and preventing you from going. It's conscious. You are deciding that it's too hard to go with that guy. The effort required to, to, to go is higher than the effort you're willing to, to put out. And that may be based on pre- previous experience because you know if you, if you make it feel that hard this early in the race, you're going to blow up later, so you're afraid of that or whatever. But fundamentally, if you're running along and someone, and, and, you know, in a submaximal state, so you're not just, it's not a 100-meter sprint, and someone pulls away from you, you make a decision. Now it's probably it, maybe it's the right decision, but it's a conscious decision based on your subjective perception of effort and whether you feel you can sustain that effort to the to the finish line. And and so I initially found that a little harder to swallow because it it put kind of you feel like it puts the blame on you. Um, you know, like Matt, Matt Fitzgerald wrote a book about Marcora's work called "How Bad Do You Want It?" And it sort of mm-hmm. what, 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 when you put it that way, it's like, oh well, so when that guy pulled away from me, it's because. I didn't want it badly enough or, yeah. and I, or I, I wasn't willing to suffer. So it, it's a little less comfortable, but it, 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 it makes, ultimately it makes, I think a little more sense to me. Um, and, uh, it, you know, much as I would like to wish to bl- blame a subconscious governor, <laughs> the, 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 this perce- this conscious perception of effort and voluntary oh. decisions. Um, I, th- I think it does make sense. And if you look at, what people in the sort of central governor camp are would say now they've they they tend to say that it's your perception of effort your subjective perception of effort that acts to to protect you that that that, that so it is the means by which the central governor works so so you've got a much more uh, you've got a lot more overlap between these these various ideas um, uh, of, of what's going on in the brain that, that, that somehow you're, it's, it's your, your subjective perception of effort that's at the center of all these things. And so if you can find ways of altering your perception of effort, then you're in business. Yeah. Well, one of my takes from Marcoro's work that's a little different than the central governor is to me, it, it's much more of a, it's a conscious calculation. If that person pulls away from me and, and I'll, I'll use the, the marathon as an example, and it's the halfway mark, and you know maybe it's uh, maybe it's my buddy Scott that I run a couple of marathons with and half marathons with, and we're friendly rivals. And um, if if Scott pulls away from me, I'm doing the calculation in my head of like, okay, what's this effort feel like to me, and what do I know about Scott's training? Cause we train together a good deal, and you know I don't think he can keep this up, and so I'm making that realizing if I'm if I'm pushing this pace. And he's trying to make a surge that I'm calculating going, I don't think that's going to work for him. Or if I go with him, ooh, it's way too early, way too fast for me to do this. And I've got, you know, I think I can catch him. If I stay, if I, if I keep him in sight, I'll be able to get him in the last mile. And so to me, it's a little more, 
a little more conscious than something that's trying to protect my body from harming itself, which the, the, the first version of the central governor theory, and, and one thing I, I will say I appreciate about it is that, you know, it's theory and it has adopted and, and been tweaked as more and more, you know, as studies have been done and things like that. But I remember the first version that I read was the whole idea was it's there to protect the heart. You know, the, the, the brain doesn't want the heart to die because if it dies, the brain dies. And, you know, then Ben Levine pointed this out uh, one time, you know, who, who's a cardiologist by training and said that, you know, well, if that was the case and nobody who ever, ever had a heart attack could ever exercise because the heart's already damaged. And, um, and then, you know, the kind of the theory evolved into being a little more global to me and protecting the body or, uh, the brain in there. But, uh, um, but it, it is fun to uh, what it is it is I do get myself I, I get the popcorn out when the Twitter comes on and, <laughs> yeah I know there are, there are a few things that will, with Samuel there are, there are a few things that will trigger him and I just start eating the popcorn watching the thread go after that point in time I got I take some kind of like Schadenfreude delight out of that or something yeah I mean it's it's fun to watch when it's a it's and it's illuminating when it's when it's a scientific debate and they're pulling out references and explaining. Yes. Things and you you can learn a lot in those in those Twitter exchanges. Uh, as time has gone on, they've tended to devolve more rapidly into just you know insults about exactly. Sam's parentage and things like that. And yes. and and that when when it becomes just personal insults, uh, that to me is is and and you know it's like not to get too deep into it. You know some some of the guys who I who I think are most guilty of it, they'll, they'll say, oh, it's, they'll sort of at the end they'll say, oh, it's if someone tries to call them on the, on it, they'll say it's just you know it's just banter. And to me, it's like it's banter when everyone's having fun. When right. one person is getting really upset and three people are calling him, you know, a, an Italian peasant or something like that. To me, that's not banter. That's bullying, and and uh, I find it less amusing at that point. Yeah, it it does devolve. I you know there's uh you know that part of the sign not good. Uh, let's get back to the brain a little bit and um, talk about, in the book, you have several sections and chapters on various uh, techniques that have been used to kind of manipulate the brain and your thoughts, um, including, you know, Marcor, we'll, we'll stick with Marcor on this one about uh, these awful experiments that he does on studies on people where kind of pre-fatiguing the brain and, and you did some of this Maybe give folks a little feel for uh, what that involved and what your experience was with it. Yeah, so this is an idea that Marcor calls brain endurance training, and you know the principle is actually surprisingly simple. Uh, so first of all, if you let's say you want to run a marathon, it's everyone understands this takes mental effort. That that you know by the time you're at mile eighteen or whatever. Uh, it, it, you're having to really focus to keep yourself moving at the pace, the, uh, you know, at goal pace. It's very easy to slow down. It's, it's, the, you know, and the analogy I often use is it's like holding your finger in a can close to a candle flame that you have to, you know, you have a very natural instinct to pull your finger away from the flame. You have to override that instinct to, to hold it there. And it takes, takes effort. So mental fatigue is, is, or, or, or you know, resisting mental fatigue is, an important part of being an endurance athlete. And so if you want to imp improve your mental endurance, uh, Marcora's, you know, idea was, well, you know, if you want to improve your physical endurance, you do physically fatiguing things over and over again and your body adapts. So how about if we do mentally fatiguing things over and over again, and then your brain will adapt to handle mental fatigue better. 
And so, you know, and the model he used was you sit at a computer and you you do a, you know, you spend, let's say an hour or something do, doing some sort of mentally fatiguing sort of computer game type thing. You're sitting on the screen, there's maybe letters or arrows or numbers or shapes flashing. And depending on the color of the shape or the air, direction of the arrow, you press one button or another. And it's not hard, you don't, you know, like anyone could do these tests, but to sit there for an hour and, and you, you know, your, your, your reaction time is being assessed. So you're, you're you know, focusing on the screen for an hour. It is really mentally fatiguing. <laughs> and so, so that, you know, the first iteration of this idea of mental, of, of brain endurance training is you just do that, you know, in addition to whatever else you're doing, you spend an hour a day, um, or whatever, you know, five days a week, let's say doing brain endurance training and see if that makes you a better marathoner. And they, they, you know, they did a pilot study funded by the British Ministry of Defense, and the results were actually pretty impressive. But, and, and, and as you mentioned, I, I tried that too, uh, leading up to the Ottawa Marathon back in 2013 to, for, for a Runner's World article. And, and it, it was just horrific. It was super boring. <laughs> and it was also super time-consuming. You know, it's like if you've yep. got a job and you're trying to train for a marathon, and then you're like, okay, just spend five hours a week sitting in front of a computer going tap, tap, tap. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's really hard to, 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 to get into that. Um, so the, the sort of second iteration they came up with is, is, well, what if you're, you know, sitting on an exercise bike and you're doing your, your bike workout and you've got a screen in front of you and you can do the brain endurance training while you're exercising. So you're getting an extra, you know, an especially mentally fatiguing physical workout. And they did some more research, uh, again, funded by the British military, and that they found some pretty remarkable improvements in, in endurance with this protocol. Uh, and then it kind of it it stuck there for a little while because it was just like, who's really going to do this and how do you make it practical? Because they were using fairly sophisticated psychological uh, computer tasks to, mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily easily accessible to people. Because it's not just a question of like, go and do your times tables or something like that. You, you're, you're, they're, they're picking specific computer tasks that use specific elements of executive function in the brain. So like sustained attention and response inhibition that are precisely the ones that you need to develop or improve if you want to, you want to race well. So for a few years, there was kind of nothing happening. Now the the things are moving again. There's a new app developed by one of Marcora's former postdocs, uh, that that's getting actually use, um, from a lot of, um, team sports because they find mental fatigue is actually really important also if you're playing soccer for example fatigue physical fatigue is a big issue and mental fatigue so that you can keep moving around the pitch but also so you can make the right decision in a split second so you can yeah. d- decide whether to pass or shoot and things like that and mental fatigue really affects those sorts of responses so the, there's there's an, this app that people and i can't remember the, li- the full list but it's you know like nba nfl uh, german soccer league premier league uh formula one red bull all these p- places are trying out this app um and there's a, a couple of other apps under development marcora is developing one again with the british ministry of defense that relies instead of using a screen you, you have things beeping in your ear and you have to press a button that you're holding in your hand depending on which beeps occur where mm. so it's something you could take with you even going out for a run. Um, although, you know, I got to be a little careful, uh, not to, you know, run into a tree or anything like that, but, but trying to make it, and trying to make this idea so that it's something you can do combined with your exercise. And actually one of the protocols that's, that's, uh, that's been being used uh, certainly by team sport athletes and, and, and by some Olympic athletes, uh, in, in the last cycle, but by, by badminton athletes is let's say you're doing a, an intense, like a circuit workout or some sort of interval, based workout where there's hard efforts followed by breaks. 
in your 90 seconds of recovery, instead of just sitting there with your hands on your knees, you rush over to the iPad and you do 90 seconds of, of fairly complex uh, cognitive tasks so that the whole, the, over the, the total of the workout, uh, you, you've got your physical workout in, but you've ramped up the cognitive demands to try and improve your, your, your brain endurance. Um, and, you know, they, they, basically the idea here, again, it, it's just fundamentally the result you're going for is that then when you're, you're in the middle of a, a marathon, say, things are just going to feel a little bit easier. Your legs are not more tired or less tired. Your legs are the same, but your brain is a little bit less tired. So the overall sense of how hard you're working gets a little bit easier. So you're able to keep going a little faster for a little longer. Yeah. And it, that goes back to Marcora's idea is that if it's that perception of effort that really is driving it and, you know, we, we take drugs to, overcome that perception effort and that's one of the reasons or that's one of the ideas behind why caffeine is beneficial is it lowers that uh sensation of effort so you know if you do this it's a it's a way of doing that without taking the caffeine perhaps or just another route to getting there or maybe a more robust route than than caffeine might be and if you can get over that sense of effort or or pain if you will you talk about using um uh, um it's tylenol i think is uh in, yep. in doing that researchers used it to you know turn off some of that that pain information that's coming back from the the body to the brain and it it does lend credence to the brain is a part of this i mean it's you know the brain's in the body so it's being affected by everything going on inside it um i don't know why we would ever think that it was you know separated since you know the blood that's going through your legs eventually goes through your brain as well and is turning stuff around. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a closed system that, you know, normally we don't want it to be an open system. <laughs> uh, that's that yeah. a real serious problems for sure uh, with that. And so share some of your experience in doing um, the, the hour of, uh, I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but you had to, if a, if a circle came up, you had to hit a letter or, or point an arrow or something. And, uh, and then going out for your for a run. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because it, it it it's it sounds very easy, but when I first so that when I first started doing the these tasks, they gave me three different computer tasks: one with arrows, and you know, like the, so the arrow one is called the flanker task. It's super easy. Five arrows appear on the screen. You ignore the four outer ones and just look at the middle arrow. And you if it point left points left, you press the left arrow. If it points right, you p- press the right arrow. So it's like this is not rocket science. But you just have to watch and you have to reply quickly. And so I had three tasks and it's just like, it just gets boring really quickly. Yeah. And so, I, so I, you know, after the first couple of days, I emailed Marcora and I was like, so right now I'm just starting easy. I'm not doing long sessions. I, I'm doing 15 minutes and I'm doing like five minutes of each of the three because it makes it a little less boring. And he emailed back and he's like, yeah, boredom is part of the point. You have to be able to <laughs> sustain your attention even when it's not interesting. So don't do three times five minutes. Do one times 15 minutes of one task at a time. And so that was like, oh, man. Uh, and then I was gradually building up till I could do, you know, an hour or 80 minutes. And and it was just, it, 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 again, it's not hard. You just It's very hard to keep your mind from wandering. And so then sometimes, not always, but sometimes what I would do is do the brain training and then head straight out for a run, and in some cases, uh, well, to, you know, to make it really high, high impact, or at least uh, that was the idea. I would go out and do like a tempo run or some kind of, mm-hmm. you know, marathon pace run or something like that. And it was a really interesting experience because you could tell, at least, well, it's very hard to eliminate placebo effect, but it felt like I could tell 
that my legs were fine. I, you know, I could run marathon pace and I would never, it wasn't like I ever felt, oh, I can't maintain this pace. It was more just like, I think I was maintaining the pace. Then I'd get to the next split. I'd check my watch. I'm like, oh, I slowed down by 15 seconds on that, that last kilometer or whatever. Uh, just because my mind was wandering and it was just, it was just my, my, and there was a disconnect, I guess, between what I thought my perception of, or what my perception of effort was and how fast I was running. Normally, you know, I want to run 330 a K, then I know how hard it needs to feel. Right. But instead I'd be running what felt like it and feeling fine, but it's just, I was actually running 345. Um, so, so that was, that, that to me was a good indication that, you know, this, this was something real. And in a sense, what it made it feel like is if I went out and did a, you know, a 10 mile tempo run or something, it it was like the last, from the physical point of view, it was like the first 10 miles of the marathon, which is good because it meant I didn't dig a deep hole, uh, training wise. Uh, but from a mental perspective, it was felt like the last 10 miles of the marathon because I was pre fatigued by this brain training. So, so I, you know, that was interesting to me. It's, it's there's lots of like, potential caveats uh yeah. about this it's like because it's possible to overtrain your brain too right like if you're training hard and, and especially if you've got other things going on in your life like a job and family and stuff like that uh par- part of the problems you can run into, run into is not just like are your legs fried it's is your brain fried and and so adding a whole bunch of of, of brain training uh that's that's not necessarily going to be uh uh, you know that, that that adds some extra training load, and you have to be aware of that. So you have to make sure you have some headroom before you start adding. You know, just sort of thinking. N- nothing comes for free. You can't you can't just add it in without thinking that it's going to make your train your overall training load harder. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. And the the other part, just you know, in real life experience, uh, at least for myself, and you hear people talk about this too. So I don't think this is unique to me. Is you know, people when they're under stress from life. You know, relationships, academics, work stress, you know, family stuff, whatever, you know, that, that takes a toll on people's ability to recover sometimes. And if you added this on top of it, it would probably, you know, could put them in the hole even quicker. And, you know, I, I, I've known I've, you know, gone through some, you know, downtimes in my life on, on the personal side that it, it affects my sleep, which affects my ability to recover, which affects my ability to train. And, um, so it, it kind of made this part made sense to me that if I have a really hard day at work, sometimes maybe I've really had to focus and been in a workshop all day or something where I really couldn't, you know, take time out and go do something um, that sometimes those runs were not very good. Now, I will admit the other times I, I get out and it's like, thank God I'm outside and I can, you know, I can run and I can leave all that behind and enjoy, you know, I live in a beautiful place here in Colorado where I can get out and do that. But it, it does ring true with me that 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 mental fatigue of you know taking exams and things like that that may occur take their toll and have to be accounted for in some way and and you know made up for if you will and compensated for. Yeah, two, two things I'll say to that. One is that um, you know when I talked to Marcora after this experiment on on brain training, and I you know I told him honestly, it's like it was it was interesting, but I I. I can't imagine many people wanting to actually do this. And, and he totally understands that. And he, he agreed. But he said, listen, what, you know, maybe brain training doesn't have to involve sitting in front of the computer tapping these shapes. But maybe knowing this gives you some perspective on those days, like you just said, when yeah. let's say you've had a, a long day in a workshop and 
you're finally going to get out for your run and you kind of know your run's going to be crap or let's say you've been up late because you know you, you have a sick child or whatever and you wake up in the morning you're trying to go for your workout but you know it's like oh man i got three hours of sleep last night this is going to be a terrible workout and so instead of saying this workout's a write-off or instead of saying i'm going to cancel this workout and save it for another time his point is maybe sometimes it's a good idea to just go out and do the workout and understand it's going to be a little bit slower but understand, think of it, this is a, a mental fatigue workout. You're you're learning to push through uh, fatigue. And so you're kind of pre-fatigued, not your legs aren't pre-fatigued, but your, your your brain is. And since that's something that's going to affect your, your performance on race day, having some practice uh, doing training sessions in that state is probably not a bad idea. So to me, that was kind of an interesting uh, maybe a more practical thing to take away of you know turning lemons into lemonade w- when you are mentally fatigued, that 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 becomes a positive for getting a mental fatigue workout in as opposed to a negative like oh my my workout is a washout today. Um, there was a second point that I was going to make, but I've totally forgotten what it is. So <laughs> okay, I'll, uh, I'll come back to it if it if it floats back into my head. All right, if it does, that'll be great. But uh, I want to I want to kind of go back in time a little bit talk about your. Kind of your your first book, which was which comes first, cardio or weights? And by the way, I want you to answer that question. But um, it came out in 2011, and obviously, you know, doing your stuff with Endure and other writings and things. And, and one of the, you alluded to this earlier. One of the things I really kind of liked about the book was um, you basically are taking all the questions I think have ever been asked on any running or exercise message board and you address them. <laughs> and, um, and I thought it was really great. I, I'd kind of forgotten that aspect of the book. Cause I, I read it probably, you know, six or seven years ago now. And then I like at the end of each chapter, you give a, you give some bullet points on here, things to consider. Here's the takeaways from it. And I, I, I love that aspect of the book. And, and again, I thought you took a really great approach to it. you, laid out what we know, what we don't know in here. Um, you've covered some, you know, topics on, you know, again, it's on, you know, cardio or weights was kind of the, you know, the question that caught my eye on here because that's a question that, you know, I've been asked by tons of people and I've asked that question too. And um, and so I want your answer on that, but also maybe to take anything out of the book that in, in recent years you may have uh, either, were if you were on the fence on it, at the time you wrote, uh, which comes first, cardio or weights, maybe and you go, yeah, now I've decided, yeah, totally not. Or, yeah, I'm much more inclined to think there is something to that. Whereas, you know, almost 10 years ago now, you maybe were, you know, we just didn't have good evidence on it. Yeah. So in terms of answering the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, of you asked the, the question, uh, okay? I yeah, mean, exactly. The question, so. uh, uh, of all the topics in the book. <laughs> The title of the book points to the probably the question with the most ambiguous and unclear answer. Um, I, I will say, you know, and this my title for the book was Sweat Science, but they the, my my uh, editors felt that the, that this would kind of catch people's eye, and, and yeah. you know maybe they were right. But the problem is, every interview I ever did about the book when when it came out started with, okay, so tell me what's the answer? Yeah, and and you know when you're on a ra- when you're a five minute radio interview. The last thing they want is an answer that's like, 
Well, you know, let me tell you, it, it really depends on the context. And of course, there are 17 factors you have to consider. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the short answer in the book, the, 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 which, which I think is one of the things that hasn't held up as well as, as maybe I thought it would, um, was that there, there's some evidence that when you do a workout, there, there, there's, if you look at the cellular response to exercise, there's, there's some adaptive pathways that are either going to trigger uh, bigger muscles, or they're going to trigger increases in endurance. And they use some of the same parts of the cell in a sense. So they can't necessarily both be operating at hundred percent. So there's a sense in which if you do a workout and you st start out by doing, uh, uh, going for a run and then you hit the weight room right after your body can't sort of switch on a dime. You're still in kind of endurance mode. Yeah. At, uh, for, for a little while. And so you're likely to get a little less benefit from, uh, strength training. And that's the, that was stuff that was just coming out when I wrote the book in the sort of late two thousands, uh, you know, just before 2010. So it was kind of interesting and exciting that that is true. But I think with the benefit of a little more, you know, a broader lens, I would say its significance is less than we thought it's true, but it's maybe not a, a basis on which to plan your workouts and the, the, the truth is that the sort of more basic things like how much energy do you have and how much motivation do you have and how much time do you have tend to be more important so it's like if you do your your run before your weights you're going to get more out of your run but that has maybe as much to do with whether you're fresh and also what you know whether you're fully stocked calorically because uh, you know a big problem if you're if you're training both cardio and weights is just that you're it's very hard to be in a fully uh primed uh you know and fueled state for both workouts so i think the, the short answer to, to 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 get around get back to the point is uh whichever is most important to you you should probably do first but it's maybe not for the reasons that that uh that i i thought at the time and I think the, the overwhelming answer is whatever's convenient for you. Yeah. So if it if it just works better for you to do one before the other, the differences are small enough that you know convenience and logistics are probably a better guide than worrying about cellular signaling. Well, I would say for the vast <clears throat> pardon, pardon me for the vast majority of us, those differences are so negligible that it's not worth even mentioning. And it's probably just the big thing is doing them both consistently over time is probably the bigger thing. I have, I struggle with my weightlifting, um, partly hey, because, you I, both. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just the nature of, you know, runners and endurance athletes just, you know, we're endurance athletes for a reason. And, yeah. um, and, and I, I also blame it. I was much better at lifting weights when I lived in Wisconsin for three years, because for a good chunk of the year, it's cold. And it's snowy, <laughs> and I would get out and go run, but I typically was not running long. Whereas here in Colorado, it's gorgeous, and you know the weather's hardly ever that bad. And I'd rather, much rather, go outside for a run on the trails than be in a stuffy weight room and and do that. And I know I could do body weight exercise, I could do all kinds of other things, but um, you know, it's it's the end of the day, it's not it's not as big of a deal to me as it should be as I'm getting, as I'm in my fifties now and I know I'm losing muscle mass. Um, in fact, I'm going to go for a run and go lift weights after this and you're going to sort of inspire me to get back on that, uh, on that wagon. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, like, I know we're, we're coming to the end of our, our time here. Uh, and I just want to, you know, anything else you want to kind of, uh, 
plug where people can find you, how they can follow you on Twitter, um, just any other big points from uh, Endure that you want to uh, touch on, and um, then we'll we'll leave it at that. Sure. Uh, I mean, I guess actually just building on what you were just saying about just getting, just doing it is most important. I guess the big, the big message I hope that I, that I think maybe I sometimes don't emphasize enough is a lot of the stuff in Endure, uh, trying to understand the sort of nuances of what defines your limits. It's really interesting stuff, but we shouldn't confuse that with the main course of the meal that, that, uh, you know, uh, we, it's fun to think about the 1% and the 2% and even the 3%, but the 97% is, you know, get out there, push hard, uh, you know, do your training. So I, I, I would just, I guess, reinforce what you were just saying that, um, y- y- we should never be in a, a place where it's like, oh, I guess I won't bother doing weights because I just ran. So that means my, my strength training will be, you know, it's adaptation will be compromised or whatever. It's, no, just, just do it. And then, if you're having fun and you've got everything else under control, then start sweating the 1%. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's, that's an important message to be, because everyone knows how to do the 97%. I spend a lot of time talking about the 3%, but you have to do the, the 97% is a much higher yield. Getting a good night's sleep will trump anything, uh, you know, uh, any, any, you know, performance enhancing aid that we can think of. Uh, in, in terms of how to find me, uh, the easiest place is probably Twitter. Uh, my handle is sweat science, all one word. That's anything I write or, or if I see something else that I, that looks interesting to me, I, I tend to post it there. Um, I do also have a Facebook page, sweat science and a, and a website, alexhutchinson.net where you can sort of see past articles and, you know, my, high school report cards and well, not quite, but a <laughs> <laughs> random, random deeper background. Um, but, uh, yeah, Twitter's, Twitter's probably where the action's at. And I promise I won't, uh, insult anybody like, uh, <laughs> uh like, like some of the people we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I, I want to go back a second for, first of all, uh, if, if this is the first time you found my podcast, please go back. The episode before this is with Christy Ashwin, who I mentioned at the start, and I think your book, I think Endure and Good to Go are such great bookends to read and, and reading them back to back. Or so I, I would say maybe read yours first and then hers. I, I think that's a good build up on laying a, a little foundation of the physiology and then going into that one. Um, and I, like I said, I read them, I reread Endure and um, I'd read Good to Go uh, a few weeks back. And it just, there was so much tie into you. And, and you two, I, I loved your road show in Denver. I thought that. Uh, you two interact real well. It's obvious that you two have spent some time talking to one another and that your books have so much common overlap that um, it really made for a great, uh, great format for that. Um, and you guys were very uh, gracious in answering questions from the audience as well. Um, but one of the things I'll, I'll push back on a little bit is I'm not so sure people have the 97% down. And it, it really <laughs> frustrates me when I see on message boards um, – and so one of my areas is, is altitude training, altitude physiology. I did some work in that. My old boss at the USOC is one of the world's leading experts in altitude training. And so I was, uh, I was pulled into that, but I'll see people who are, you know, high school kids or college kids or just, or, you know, middle of Packers who talk about, well, I want to go do altitude training. And my first thought is, so you've got everything else dialed in, right? You've got your okay, my training plan is right. I know exactly how much volume I can do, how much intensity I can do. I'm sleeping well, eating well, doing all the recovery stuff. 
and now that's the time to do altitude, not, um, you know, I'm running 50, 60 miles a week and, um, I really am not sure what I'm doing in my interval training or why I'm doing them at that pace or whatever, but I'm going to go to spend four weeks at altitude in Colorado and that will make me the champion. And it's like, it's just probably not going to work that well for you. Cause if you don't have your training down at sea level, you come to altitude, you can get into a world of hurt and a world of trouble. <laughs> um, if you don't have that dialed in pretty well, and even athletes who have dialed in pretty well, it's some struggle with an altitude camp the first time they come up because it's such a, a new environment and um and things are just a little different um even the training might not be that different but for some people coming up to you know 1800 meters or 2000 meters or 2200 meters and their sleep gets disrupted it can really throw a monkey wrench in things so that's my sort of my altitude preaching there on that yeah no i i i i, 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 I totally agree um i think we know in theory what that how to do the 97 percent yeah but People's execution of the ninety-seven percent leaves a lot to be desired, and you know, including me. Let's. Uh, I, I don't want to sound like I, 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 I nail the sleep every time. And yeah. so, I think uh, exactly what you say. You got, you got, you got to focus on the big pieces before you spend a lot of time and energy and plane tickets on the on the little pieces. Yeah, or a lot of money buying gadgets and gizmos and stuff. So, unless you just like gadgets and gizmos, yeah. Uh, which and, and that, yeah, that that that's. I, I was gonna say it's like. So, some, I, you know, sometimes I get up on my soapbox about how I, you know, I, personally, I, I don't run with tech other than I have a Timex Ironman watch, no GPS, no nothing like that. And I get, sometimes I get a little high and mighty about it. And then I remember, yeah, I know a lot of people who just enjoy having the, the extra information of, of whatever it is, you know, their pace or, or uh, you know, my, my wife runs with the GPS watch, so I kind of tease her about it a little bit. And she's like, she likes it. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I can back off a little bit and understand that sometimes people do things for pleasure. And that's, that's okay, too. Yeah, it is for sure. Well, good. Well, Alex, uh, again, your book is uh, Endure, and I really hope that uh, people follow you on Twitter and uh, hit your blog post up on Outside Magazine, which is now hosting uh, your Sweat Science blog. And um, and I, I read every – that's I, I when you post a link to it, I immediately click on it to go uh, read it. It's uh, one of my favorite things to read, and I appreciate uh, – Talking with you, I appreciate that you you know bring that literature out into a way that folks can understand it and have it in context as well. So well, thanks for your thanks time. Thanks so much, Sam. Th yep. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Yep. Have a great day. So once again, this is Sam Callen, your host of the Smarter Coaching Podcast. Uh, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email me at smartercoachingllc at gmail.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day.